Welcome to Jack Chat presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak, Assistant Professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and the host of Jack Chat. The purpose of today's event is to provide uh, further information on on the recently published manuscript in the November issue of JAT entitled Work-Family Conflict of Collegiate and Secondary School Athletic Trainers Who Are Parents. Today, I'm joined by the manuscript's lead author, Dr. Stephanie Singe, Associate Professor and Academic Coordinator for Exercise Science at the University of Connecticut. And I'm also joined by a guest co-host today, Kristen McKinney, an athletic trainer at Emerson College in Boston. Kristen and Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So the first question that I want to ask you, Stephanie, is why should non-parents read this manuscript? You know, that's a great question. So we know that um, really work-life conflict, work-life balance, those concerns really are are happening regardless of whether you're married, whether you have children. So the reality of it is, although this really looked at parents and the unique challenges that parents face balancing kind of the demands of an athletic trainer in the more traditional setting and simultaneously being parents, I mean, the take-home messages can really be transferred by someone that doesn't have children um, it still has to manage other things outside of just being an athletic trainer. Thank you. And Kristen, give us a little bit more information about your background, um, your work and life. Um, all right. So I've been working at the collegiate level for six years now, all of that at Division Three, And before that, I spent six years working um, as a high school AT. Um, I mean, I find this topic really personally relevant since I am a mother to a three-year-old um, and my husband is also an athletic trainer. So it definitely hits home in a lot of ways for us. So Stephanie, can you give us some definitions to start off with today's talk? What are the differences between work and family conflict and work-family balance? Great. So really, it's just a, a perspective. So conflict means that the you're, you're having conflict. There's issues that are going on in terms of balancing your life. And then the work-life balance concept is really more of a, a harmony kind of perspective. Um, so I really try to stress that, um, you know, everyone's work-life balance is different. Um, it's very individualized, but that um, work-life balance is not equity in time and invested in different roles, but the opportunity to engage in those roles. So really the conflict results when you don't feel like you're able to adequately spend time or devote energy and resources to other life roles. Like, And so that's really the conflict piece. And then balance is really meaning that you are able to gain satisfaction and opportunity to engage in different life roles. And what different types of conflict are there? Yep. So there's really three kinds. There's time, behavioral, and um, strain. Um, but time often is the most um, conflict that we see. You know, for athletic trainers, we're always having to work 60 plus hours a week. So really the time-based conflict is the most. And that's where um, we don't have enough time to meet all the demands of our different roles. So Kristen, can you um, give us some real-world examples? <laughs> Oh, um, where has, where has time conflict come to play with you and, and Mike, your husband? Um, I mean, a lot of it for us stems around the sort of inflexibility of schedules sometimes. Um, 
there's just certain times where we both need to be at work and it is not always during the nine to five hours, which makes it really, really challenging um, as a parent. And Stephanie, you kind of touched on that um, as you were introducing the topic in the manuscript. Give us a little bit more background on why you were interested in looking at this research question. Right. So um, the reality of it is, is that in the early um, research with work-life balance, we really only looked at it using a, a small, short scale, and it didn't really um, address the three areas that conflict can result in. And, you know, I think we can surmise that time is often the most, um, the, the precursor to work-life conflict. And so it's kind of like... We, uh, aha, like, yeah, but we didn't have any data to support that there was more than, uh, you know, these other factors and these other conflicts that were happening. So that's sort of the, the, the start of it is that we kind of used this newer scale that had just come out to kind of see if we could reassess conflict and see if anything really changed in terms of the earlier work of my dissertation, which came out in 2006. So just, you know, that really is why we decided that we needed to do this. Um, and in the past, we haven't really, we've always looked at college or high school in, you know, in different um, studies, but never in the same um, sample. So that was a nice thing to do is to kind of have the traditional setting grouped into one where time seems to be the, the largest of the issues. Um, Give us some more information about your participant demographics. Yeah, so we had a large sample size um, in terms of that. And so it was the requirement was that they had to be providing patient care for at least 50% of their job related um, responsibilities, and that they had at least one child. And so that was really the demographic. Um, you know, some of the, the research out there is that support um, is the number one um, reason athletic trainers are able to kind of balance their workload. And that is, again, regardless if they're male or female, regardless if they're married, regardless if they have um, you know, children, but on a personal standpoint, I'm a mom. Um, and so I do know that there are challenges to, to finding work-life balance when you have kids. And so I think we just wanted to kind of see from a parent's perspective, um, how work-life balance is happening and how is that when you're balancing it? So it also stems from this concept of work-family guilt. So typically speaking, moms, um, <laughs> really want to be good moms and want to be really good athletic trainers. And so that mindset is really not congruent. So when, you know, if they're missing work, um, then they feel bad. And if they're, you know, missing a family obligation, then they feel bad. So it's kind of this idea of guilt, like where you wish that you were somewhere that you can't be. And so that was part of the reason that we wanted to kind of start looking at this is parents typically seem to have more, more guilt. And that was the start of why we wanted to include parents in this, this demographic. Oh, yeah. Mom guilt's not a thing at all, is it? <laughs> I feel guilty right now that I'm downstairs, you know, doing I mean, I'm loving this, but I'm like, I can hear my baby crying. So yeah, it's definitely there. There is guilt It happens. Um, and so really, what we're also kind of finding is that athletic trainers have this, this strong professional identity, right? So professional identity means that I resonate with the role of an athletic trainer, I want to do um, a good job at that. And so that in itself leads to conflict. Um, because when they do miss out on work obligations, they feel bad. And then we also are starting to understand that um, athletic trainers have a strong personal identity, meaning when they're a mom or a dad, they also resonate with that role too. And then that's the idea of the conflicts happening because they have guilt. And, and really the, the primary reason is that they don't have enough time in their day to do everything. Yeah. 
And you mentioned social support being able to facilitate this work-life balance. Can you provide some descriptions of what are the different aspects of social support? Yeah, so, so there's two components. It's type um, and where that support comes from. So um, this, where it comes from is friends, family, spouse, coworkers, supervisor. So that's sort of where it comes from. And we know obviously within the workplace, having a supervisor that believes in work-life balance, who facilitates it, role models it is really important. And we also know that kind of the idea of coworkers is really important. Um, So this idea of, you know, when there's your inflexible schedule idea. So this is when uh, having a coworker who can cover you if you already had plans that day and you don't want to kind of miss out on it, you could ask a coworker to cover your shit, your shift, so to speak, that day. And so that is providing it. And the type of support they're providing is really tangible. Like, so basically it's they're providing services or goods. And that's really like having childcare, um, that kind of stuff is really considered support. But the other kind of support is just kind of camaraderie um, and compassion and empathy, right? So when someone is having shared life experiences, struggles and successes, if I can commiserate with them, if I can celebrate with them, that also feels good and I feel supported. Um, So those are the kinds of types of social support that are out there in terms of, you know, what an athletic trainer needs to be successful. So Kristen, where do you find um, social support? I mean, I think that's definitely an area where I personally struggle and I'm sure many athletic trainers do. Um, And especially within the last year with not being able to necessarily, um, see people in person as much as we would have. Um, I think using, you know, video calls and social media has actually been really important. Um, I feel like I'm lucky and I've got a work environment where I do get a lot of that social support. Um, I have coworkers that I can, you know, switch practice coverage with if my son is sick or um, daycare is closed today because there's a snowstorm. (laughs) Um, So it's definitely there. And I think really being able to look for it and push for it is important. Um, you know, again, like the support of bosses, support of coworkers is huge for athletic trainers. And to give some background to everybody listening, Kristen and I did our master's together and became very good friends. And so um, her son's a little bit older than my son. And I, I definitely feel that that ability to commit commiserate sometimes helps a ton. Just somebody who who understands that you're sharing your experience and it might sound like complaining, but you wouldn't trade it for the world. You just need to get it out there. Um, preventing. Yeah, that, that shared experience and finding somebody like that, I think for me personally, is a really great um, yeah. social support system. Yes, so being all the way across the country. Yeah, exactly. Well, two things that are important. One, we're not really good at asking for help. So that is one thing that I really say with, you know, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to delegate. Um, and so it kind of goes into this concept of professional advocacy or self-advocacy. So part of that is communicating your needs and being okay with, you know, saying I need help. Um, and then the idea of the mantra, it takes a village, like we have to recognize that we're in um, a field that does re- demand a lot of us. And so sometimes we're going to need multiple people to help us in terms of being successful in any role we kind of assume. So let's dive a little bit more into what did you guys find? Was there any findings that surprised you, Stephanie? 
<laughs> well, I feel like sometimes because I live it, I don't necessarily get shocked by a lot of my results. But um, I think it's important because, you know, we need evidence to support kind of our decision making. So that's that's what's kind of great about this. Um, I mean, I think that um, I maybe was a little surprised that it was only time that really was an issue because a lot of times in sport organizations, the incongruence really of our healthcare hat in a sport organization where they want to win at all costs or, you know, the ideas that we push until we can't. Um, so I was sort of con- um, surprised that we didn't find more um, behavioral based or strain based conflict. Um, but, um, you know, the, again, the idea that you need support in your workplace, you need support at home um, was, was definitely great to find. Um, I think that, you know, this concept of job sharing is really important in a mindset. I think, you know, when I talk to my, even I talk to my students about it, obviously um, COVID has brought this to light, but you know, I just had a baby three months ago and the person that I, you know, I didn't see the same doctor every time I went to, to an appointment. And in fact, another um, OGYN service delivered chance. And so I'd never met them, but I had trust that, that I was going to receive great patient care. And that's sort of the same thing for athletic trainers. I think we have to be able to accept that our, our, our coworkers can provide the same level of care um, that we can and be interested in that. Um, you know, at the secondary school setting, it's a little bit more challenging when they're the sole athletic trainer. And, and some of the things that I've learned in that process is like building in per diem coverage um, or just effectively communicating these are the days that I'm not available and, and kind of training your, your coaches and the athletic director on protocols that can be put in place to support the fact that if it's an emergency, call 911. And so us as athletic trainers have to be able to say that we can model that and that we believe in that. And that also will help us kind of create some balance. So one of the things that you touched on is that so many people say secondary school setting is like the family-friendly setting, right? What did you find that either supports or refutes this characterization? So I think the reason that it's always viewed as family-friendly is because of the competitive side, right? So it's it's often this concept of um, work-family integration, where at the secondary school setting, family is allowed to be integrated more often into the day, um, meaning that they're often on the sidelines with sporting events. Um, so that was sort of why I think a lot of times people thought it was family friendly. Also, the I, the concept of the hours, meaning like you don't go in until two o'clock in the afternoon and you're done by six or seven o'clock. But, um, you know, the idea is that family friendly actually means that your workplace is conducive to having, um, you know, time to spend with your family. Um, and so it's really about the policies that are implemented and those are formal and informal. So if you have a supervisor that recognizes like, for the last five days, you haven't been home for dinner and facilitates an opportunity to go home to be with your family. That's an informal, you know, work-life balance, family-friendly policy. Um, or if you have the opportunity to go home um, early after, you know, a, a long couple weeks, like the idea of that, it's like, you know, you want to make sure that you have family-friendly policies in place, but I don't know that the secondary versus the college is any different. It really is just about the workplace philosophy and culture that that's around. Um, so we didn't really find any differences in terms of secondary versus, um, you know, the, the college setting. So Kristen, what, go ahead. I was going to say that definitely tracks with my experience having worked in both. And granted, I worked in the secondary setting before I was a parent, but I mean, the jobs that my husband and I had at that time, um, there's no way we would have been able to manage having a child. I mean, so much of how we make it work right now is our current employers. 
So what policies have and what even informal things have really helped you guys? Um, so for me personally, there, I'm a staff of three. Um, and the way we set up our practice coverage is that we all rotate. We have teams that we're the primary point person for, but just because my women's soccer team is practicing doesn't mean I have to be the one at that practice. Um, so that does allow us, you know, I can go home early some days, you know, some days if there's not much going on, we might just go in for some hours to do rehabs in the clinic and there might not be any practice coverage for me that day. And my other two coworkers are handling everything. So really having that flexibility on like, a week-to-week -week basis has helped drastically for all of us with life and work balance. So, And one of the other things that you, um, Stephanie, had the hypothesis was that females would have a greater amount of conflict than males. But this was not true. Expand nope. upon this. Yeah, so I think, you know, it's starting to work-life balance is not a, you know, a male, female issue. Well, what it is, is just our perspective on, on work-life balance. So what may cause conflict for a male may be different for a female. So I, I still do think that generally speaking, women, it's kind of that, that the stereotype that women want to be at home. Um, women want to um, be able to do everything well, still kind of leads to that. Um, but I think because of the culture that we're in um, today, men and women both have to work. Men and women both want work-life balance. I think that's really the shift um, that has really happened. So, I mean, I wasn't shocked that we didn't find differences. Um, I thought maybe we would um, because of the parent piece, right? The parent piece really made me think that women would feel the pressure. But we're starting to find that... Um, I was going back to that concept of professional identity and personal identity. And we're seeing that um, men and women, once they assume a parent role, really identify strongly with both. Um, and so therefore they want to be at home, but they also want to be at work. So that's, that's why we didn't find differences. I'm definitely curious. And I don't know if this is something you've looked at or would look at in the future, but it almost feels like, or I almost wonder if there's a generational difference there. Um, if you look at young parents now versus either older ATs or even like retired ATs and their experiences. So I know it's something that my husband personally like feels very validated by this study <laughs> um, because I know he feels a lot of that work-life conflict and so much emphasis is put on like moms and the mom guilt and, you know, our struggles, which is valid. <laughs> um, but he feels a lot of that too as a dad and there's just not always attention put on that because it's just expected that they'll be working. Yeah. So you bring up a great point. It really is the shift in the millennial generation and their perspective on work-life balance and wanting to, you know, to have that. So that, that is what we're starting to see as we start to see the, the younger groups um, we are, we don't have an actual study that has compared um, older because it would be, we would be requiring the participant to reflect versus actually engage in that. But um, that has come up in conversation is that, you know, today's parent, it's a generational thing where they want more work-life balance and it's less likely that the woman is staying at home. Um, and so, or that, you, you know, the adage that if you were going to be successful, you couldn't have a family, right? So that's sort of going away that we can, we can do it all. Um, but like I said, it just, you require a team around you to, to make that happen. And Kristen, what are some other things that really hit home for you when reading this manuscript? Um, 
honestly, one of the things that I really focused in on, I know you said that there was more um, time-based conflict, um, but I thought it was interesting. I noticed that there was still a fair amount in the strain base, which like I find really interesting and specifically that like people have a harder time um, sort of shutting off work when they're at home versus the opposite way. And I know I'm the same way. Like I can, if my son's at daycare, if he's home with his dad, I'm not too worried about him when I'm at work. I can kind of turn that part of my brain off. But if there's something from work that's bothered me that day, it's really difficult to turn that off um, when I'm at home and trying to spend time with my family. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the, the you know, the two, the two theories are separation and integration. And really, um, it's okay to integrate your home into your workday just because the amount of time it requires. Um, but the, the really needs to be a separation when you're at home to really enjoy being at home or whatever it may be, whatever that activity is. It doesn't necessarily just being um, a parent, but you really have to disengage. And a lot of times I, that's what I talk about um, in my talks is like, right. So you just have to find time. We set goals for our athletes and our patients. Um, we should set goals for ourselves and, and prioritize our, ourselves. And I think that's one thing as a parent, I say this as a mom too, but like as a parent in general, we really need to make sure that we're having self-care of ourselves because then we can't take good care of our kids. And then that spills over, right? If I'm not taking care of myself at home, then how can I be a good athletic trainer and, and, and care for my patients as well? So it, it kind of goes both ways. But reality of it is, is that it's okay to let home spill over into work. But really, when you're at home, it's it's much more important to, to shut that work role off. It's hard because we, we love our jobs. But um, if we want to stay rejuvenated and refreshed, it's really important to kind of do that. Stephanie, what other suggestions you have um, based upon this work and, and other work that you're doing to help with um, those that employ AT parents? Yeah, so I mean, I think the first thing, um, it comes from employers, but it also comes from the individual itself. So for the employer, really, you know, you have to listen to um your staff's needs or your athletic trainers, you know, needs and, and kind of identify that. But as the, the parent, you know, that you have to be an effective communicator to your employer to let them know what you want. So I talk about self-advocacy and, and um, really the way that works is that you as an individual have to reflect on your roles in your life. So you have a professional identity and you have a personal um, identity and, and you have roles within those. And so you have to do some self-reflection. And part of that self-reflection is how do they prioritize those on a daily basis? So, you know, today, right now I'm engaged in my work role and that's taking priority. Um, tomorrow, maybe I have less of a work role that's required and I can spend more time in my, my other life roles. Um, so it's really important on that part. But then once I reflect on what's important to me and what roles require my time and effort and provide me with value and enrichment, I then kind of have to move towards to communicating when I need help. So whether that's today, I said, Hey, honey, I need you to watch the baby for a couple hours while I do X, Y, and Z. Um, or, you know, it's talking to my employer about, Hey, I need this time off because I have to go to a doctor's appointment. You have to communicate what your needs are. Um, and, and to do that. And then the leadership piece of the final part of self-advocacy really is that you have to lead yourself. You have to be able to, you know, set good, strong examples. And part of that is right. So if you are at home and you have to shut off your emails and you have to shut off your texts, if you're going to really engage in that. Um, and so on the flip side, you have to be surrounded by leaders who also value work-life balance and, and work for individuals that value you and value your time away from your job. That's hard. I wanted you to give me a magic bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Self-reflection is 
hard. It's uncomfortable it and I don't really like hard. it. <laughs> it is really hard. But I mean, so other things in terms of maybe some easy things is right every day, schedule 30 minutes for yourself. And that means you, no one else can ha- interrupt that time and protect that time. And that could be meditation. It could be going for a run. It could be reading a book. Um, it could be taking a bath whatever it may be, like every day, try to schedule 30 minutes for yourself. That's independent of anyone else asking um, for what you need. And then some of the other stuff is just important self-care, making sure that you're eating healthy, you're getting exercise, you're um, sleeping well. Um, I say that as I get like four hours of sleep last night, but you know, um, it's temporary. Um, but again, so just some basic things of, of self-care are really definitely important. And part of that also is surrounding yourself with really good people. You mentioned that you guys talk about what it's like to be parents. That's so important to make sure you kind of have the, those um, social connections. Um, they really help in terms of work-life balance. So do you have any favorite resources or books to help us develop those skills of self-advocacy. <laughs> I'm putting you on spot here. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. I don't actually have a, I don't actually have a, a book um, in terms of, uh, of that. Um, so one of the, the great things is that um, my support is my husband and we both believe in work-life balance and we often have these conversations. And that was the start of me looking up and kind of really understanding the idea of self-advocacy um, but honestly, um, journaling, um, on a regular basis to see what's important to you. Um, you know, we make to-do lists. Um, so that's also a really important piece of the, the puzzle is if you could write a to-do list every day to make sure you're on that is, um, really important. But, um, in terms of just resources, the NATA position statement, um, has a lot of great recommendations and, you know, the, the strength of that comes from, you know, the qualitative nature. Um, and obviously, as we move forward and continue to understand this, you know, the NATA has the research initiative and they, they're calling for more research and work-life balance. And we really more, need more longitudinal quantitative data. But at the same time, you know, the position statement is really based on the stories and the experiences and the narratives of um, the membership. And so that really tells you what's been working and what's not. So that's a great resource to help you kind of... Um, work towards um, a better work-life balance, especially advocating for yourself through your employer. Thank you. Um, So Kristen, any final thoughts um, before we kind of wrap up on anything that sparked your interest that you really want to try to explore in your own setting? Um. I mean, I feel like we've covered so much of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think um, I would be a little bit curious to see uh, kind of differences amongst like the types of positions people hold. Um, I know, again, looking at like my own situation, me being just a practicing athletic trainer and my husband being in a director position, he's got a lot of administrative duties that I don't have, which contributes to you know, his stress and making his balance a little bit more challenging. So um, I think that's definitely something going forward that would be interesting, I think. You can learn to delegate to reduce his stress. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and then Stephanie, where has, what have you learned from this manuscript and where is it, this research going? Yeah. So this, this study was actually um, a, a very large mixed method study. So the data that's presented in this particular um, 
article is really the quantitative findings and and looking at um, how you know the basically the work family conflict scale. Um, but one of the things, obviously, the next step is really understanding work family guilt and work family conflict through that. So that's really that's where that's moving. My doctoral student is currently looking at work life balance, work family conflict, and and adding a piece of family roles, family values. So this piece of like how again that personal role, how strongly do I identify? Um, with your non-work roles and, and looking at that. And we're looking at it in, in a longitudinal manner. So she's collected data, interestingly, through COVID. And then we'll collect again data in May. And interestingly, part of the COVID piece is that um, professional identity is growing for the athletic trainer, meaning that people are see, seeing their value. Um, but at the same time, there are some athletic trainers, because the, ch- the role is changing, they're also feeling like they are losing a little bit of their identity and they're struggling with work-life balance because now they're at home trying to provide some telehealth or they don't know when they're going in and now their kids are at home. And so it's creating a different kind of work-life balance. So really the next steps are really longitudinal research, more quantitative mixed method studies to really understand um, the experiences of large groups of individuals, but also still keeping it where it's really an individualized pursuit for work-life balance. Yeah. You mentioned it earlier, but sharing the story and there's a lot of value in, in hearing that the the numbers are one thing, but that was one of the things that came up for me is I want to hear the stories behind this and what were the reasonings why versus just there's differences or not differences, right? Right. So I really, the story is that I need to have support. Um, I do love my job. I love being a parent or I love being whatever I'm not and, and at work. And so, you know, the, those two passions fuel happiness and enrichment but they also fuel conflict because they want to be good at, at both roles. That doesn't hit home at all. Does it Kristen? Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. Totally applies. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for joining me today, Kristen. I really appreciate it. And Dr. Uh, Singa completely look forward to seeing what more you guys have coming out of this because it is sorely needed. And thank you again for doing the work. And this manuscript, as well as all of the Journal of Athletic Training's um, offerings are available open access online. Thank you guys again for joining me. Thank you. 